Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I am a Chicago-based entrepreneur, author, uh, pop culture commentator turned podcaster, uh, freelancer of all the creative things. I don't know. Yeah, honestly, today I'm just a person that, you know, takes out my grievances with my days in youth group out on my public platform. But, you know, we're, we're going to we'll still have have a good time today. I know this is kind of an unconventional topic. I know it's a bit of a what some might think is a risky topic, though, I'd argue while religion is taboo, I do think that for a lot of us, it's actually kind of quite an interesting shared experience that, you know, whether you're still involved or not, I think the way you perceive it when you're younger is quite fascinating and quite different from when you're older. And I do think a lot of it is kind of strangely pop culture adjacent, uh, whether it's, you know, true love waits and the Joe bros or just kind of, you know, how we used to jam out to uh, Mercy Me. On this podcast, you know, I want to talk about what's going on in the world and the zeitgeist. And, you know, I talk a lot about nostalgia and, uh, you know, the small things throughout life that are quite sensory and take you back and uh, make you remember a, a simpler time in your formative years. And I think lately I've been thinking a lot, too, about, like, what are the other influences, for better or for worse, that made you into who you are? Like, obviously, we all you know, bought Katie's parking only signs at the and puka shell necklaces at the Ron John and even living in landlocked states or head to toe Roxy and Billabong. But beyond those, like, you know, surface level commonalities we all have, um, you know, how, how are we taught to be like the women we became and who ultimately had the most influence over us? And even though time has passed and I'm sure most of us are fine, doesn't mean we can't kind of think through some of that and how it impacted our lives moving forward. And I think I'm just so wildly impressed by my listeners, how dynamic and intelligent and introspective and um, how diverse all of your interests are and how you're kind of always pushing me in, in a good way to, to, you know, test the boundaries of what we talk about here. I'm actually probably a more serious person than I even let on. And I really enjoy uh, doing this and finding ways we can connect as women and, um, you know, what if what I'm kind of learning about myself, you know, how I always talk about how I, I don't understand people like is there a fixation with true crime and uh, like podcasts and shows and everything being about murder. Um, I think, too, through this process, I've realized that like my true crime, my version of, of murder is like like the less sinister and less enforceable, almost crimes of character and manipulation that exist in authoritative entities that have money and that have power and that beyond that. They have this uh, guise of divinity that people cannot prove nor disprove. And people use money and power and religion and scripture to, you know, and, 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 and kind of take a lot of liberty. And there's a lot of issues with biblical legalism. And, and when somebody is telling you on behalf of God that you need to do something or pay the money or act a certain way and they can hang things over your head like your salvation, like eternity, it creates this like... I mean, it's it's power over you that that is truly incomparable. And when inevitably flawed men get into this system where they have that kind of power over you, what happens when it comes to matters of faith? You know, believing is is seeing. And if we cannot say the thing that we're being told to do will have X results or won't have X results, and if we can't call the people that we're supposed to revere as as religious leaders liars, if we can't call them out on, on what their missteps, it creates these organizations um, that uh, can be very problematic and very corrupt. And I think that I have this fascination with uh, how we idolize people and how men run 
organizations that are supposed to be in the reflection of all that is pure and holy and good and that represents love and forgiveness, yet so often they turn into something so, so different. And beyond that, when things go wrong, when things are mishandled, they they so easily go undetected in a highly unregulated, untaxed organization that's given all of the benefits of the doubt in the world because it is a religion. I just can't even imagine what must be going down. And I obsess over it. And beyond even this you know, discussion today, I, I'll go deep. I will, I will rabbit hole it up. I, I at times get overcome by the rabbit holy spirit. And I'm not proud of it, but, you know, I guess we all have our things. I wanted to, um, you know, introduce a topic that I've, you know, kind of set up on previous podcasts, but one that I find incredibly fascinating that I could get lost in and read endless books and accounts of. And that is uh, the concept of purity culture and things like the True Love Waits movement and how kind of the pressure and, you know, quite literally, like the, the weight of True Love Waits is is put on to, you know, hundreds of thousands of young people who pledged something they didn't understand anything about, perhaps before they were even ever interested in the opposite sex, before, you know, they even understood any or were taught anything about a healthy relationship, first had to sign a contract to not have sex when they were very young, like very heavy stuff to put on kids. It's not about waiting till marriage. It's not about if you have sex or not. I'm not interested, actually, in really the abstinence piece, because I think that's a personal decision. I'm interested in the um, culture of shame, fear, regret, and trauma that a lot of women have experienced later in life in their marriages, in their 20s, in their 30s, as a result of being made to feel like um, uh, objects, as a result of being uh, hypersexualized almost creepily by the church because they want you to have sex, want you to not have sex so badly. All they talk about is how you shouldn't have sex. And all they talk about is how you're walking sex on a stick that's going to tempt any man that comes near you. And it's this, it's this whole... Uh, mentality that uh, is really fascinating. And boys and girls are spoken to differently. Um, the implications on self-worth are very different. And um, I think that, you know, through collecting listeners' stories that I'm actually going to read in the second episode, I know you're probably rolling your eyes for a couple different reasons, because I kind of like to do one episode that's like the theory and, you know, quoting books and experts and uh, whatever, and kind of like, you know, having a more lighthearted view and then kind of getting into the heavier stuff and then i want the second episode to a not have an ad and b uh just be able to read a bunch of stories uh from my listeners that <clears throat> i almost think it's incredibly unique that i'm not reading uh you know stories from people who knew it would be in a book or in an article or who were formally interviewed or pre- prepared some sort of uh narrative for any one reason but rather me saying hey if you have a story submit it and to get so many emails of people that on the fly were like I've never really wrote this before, but yeah, I did kind of have a weird experience. It's incredibly meaningful to me, and it's incredibly interesting to think about, you know, as women, um, these things that, you know, maybe aren't of major global impact and maybe didn't change your life life's trajectory all that much. Um, but it doesn't mean they didn't affect you. It doesn't mean that they're not important to process and talk about and to um, have a healthy view of. And it doesn't mean that we can't share with each other and learn from one another and hopefully feel less alone if some of us are feeling like, geez, why do I still care? Why am I still affected? Why, why, why do some of these um, themes still run in my life? And, you know, talk to any, uh, you know, psychologist and they'll tell you the things that happen to us in our youth. We almost, we, we really do act in response to as adults, whether we recognize it or not. And um, I just love 
that this is a platform and this is an incredible community can be a place where we can, you know, talk about light and heavy things. We can talk about, um, you know, the, the kind of pop culture fun aspect of our youth group days, but then uh, discuss how later on, even though we thought it was normal and fun about water skiing at the time, maybe there was some stuff that was problematic. And what can we do with that going forward? And um, not even to reconcile it in our own minds, but to have a generation of young women that are, uh, you know, more empowered than we felt. So anyway, I, uh, I'll get into all of that, but I'm so happy you're here. Thanks for joining me. I hope you don't mind us going, you know, taking a bit of a serious detour, but I will say I, as it relates to like, uh, growing up in youth groups and, uh, you know, having, I, I did all the things like I, I, I have such fond memories of the time spent with my friends and youth groups at different churches at summer camps at retreats um of honestly like i think that by and large a lot of places do a really great job of making church fun for kids and i think there's so many positives that can come from it the consistency the self-reflection the feelings of safety and protection um i have no issues with religion and spirituality i have issues with uh the liberties man takes and with the power that comes along with being a, a religious uh leader in the vast un, almost unbelievable trust we put on people that are sinful regular flawed humans but the second they're affiliated with the church we all of a sudden think that they must be pure of mind heart and intention and it's just not the case uh but i honestly my interactions with people throughout my childhood were were, were largely positive and i think that a lot of people were well-intentioned and as we'll talk about, I think the Purity True Love Waits movement almost provided a curriculum that everybody followed that uh, most people probably now would be like, that was weird and that was wrong and that wasn't positioned correctly. And um, it's not like I have, you know, one source of anger or a person that I find to be sinister in their intent. But um, all things aside, am I actually pretty glad that I stayed out of all of that? Yes, but I think there was a better way it could have been done and my goal isn't like to promote uh, having sex before marriage i don't care what you do i don't care if you wait i don't, I don't care if you have it with everyone in town uh i i honestly care about uh, the promotion of healthy relationships over over focusing on virginity um i care about empowering young women to make their own decisions and to feel like we believe they can be sexually responsible I care about boys being taught the exact same and about enthusiastic consent. I care about realistic depictions of sex and marriage and um, beyond that, realistic ideals of what teenagers and young people are going to do and what statistically they are doing and not telling them they should have sex, but rather to give them options to be healthy and safe. Underneath all of this lies a deep-seated distrust of human sexuality, a desire to control how people behave and to hang things like salvation and their relationship with God and eternity over their heads in order to get them to behave in the way that they want them to, which then results in a complete detachment of self-value and self-worth should they deviate from that impossibly high standard. I don't know. I just feel so strongly that like I want people to know or, you know, want people to make sure the young people in their life know that, you know, really, you know, it, it doesn't matter what other people think. Do what you want to do. Do what is right for you and blaze forward because the only person that has to live with your decisions is you. And the only person that loses if you make decisions for other people and not yourself is you. And I think that this happens more often than we think in different ways. And, um, you know, I think that we try to save people heartache and skin knees and 
don't want to see our people we love get hurt. But there comes a time when, like, even I ask myself, you know, when I'm trying to spare people's feelings or, uh, you know, protect people, it's like, is this more about me not wanting to feel pain because I love them so much? Or am I acting out of their best interest? And I think that when I when I look back on all of this, I think, you know, I think sometimes the intentions are good and they don't want us to be in at-risk situations or make mistakes. But that lack of um, trust in that projection of uh, how we should feel and who we are and how other people perceive us and what sexuality is and means in this very specific context, it just really uh, robs people of their ability to have a clean slate and to make decisions and to make integrity-based decisions. And I just find it all very interesting. And I hope I'm not too redundant. I'm, I'm going to try to walk through this in like a structured format, but I also kind of want to give you some background in a more lighthearted manner in terms of like my experience with the church, because a lot of it is kind of funny to me and not in a way that's making fun of Christianity, but in a way that's like, you know, youth group culture is pretty funny. It just is what it is. And if you're new here, friendly reminder, this is kind of, this is my, this is a solo podcast. It's very stream of consciousness. I try to structure it a little bit. Um, I'm not like ever like leading up to one point you're trying to get to. I'm just kind of like going back and forth and talking through things. And this is just my style. It's a longer form podcast. And as I like to say, you know, anybody who thinks I'm talking for too long or rambling, you know, Joe Rogan, uh, Dax Shepard, Mark Marin, sometimes Conan Stern talks for four hours a day. There's uh, most of the industry leaders have very long form content and it's okay. There's the short podcast that serve a purpose. And then there's long mine is long. This is me. And just as I would hope you wouldn't be upset with a a restaurant for giving you a portion that was more than the arbitrary amount you wanted at that very moment, because it's very hard to accommodate everyone. Uh, you see the benefit in having more than you asked for, and you can parse it out accordingly. So, yeah, this was just a friendly disclaimer. I'm not trying to hold you hostage. I'm not trying to waste your time. Uh, we're, well, this is an at-will relationship. <laughs> uh, anyway, so what, I don't know, I maybe I've touched on before, um, in terms of like, you know, all the things that we, I talk about nostalgia so much and all the things I told you I did and I liked. Um, also during this time, largely my friend group growing up with, we were called the God Squad, the neighborhood we grew up in where we rode bikes and hung out till it got dark every night together and just like had good old fashioned, wholesome suburban Virginia fun. Uh, we, we were called the Pine Run Prudies because our neighborhood was called Pine Run and we were, they called us Prudies because we were like in middle school and not hooking up with boys. And this was kind of even before we were that influenced um, by any of this stuff, just because, I don't know, we, we weren't interested. And uh, it was truly like I had the best time with these girls. And um, yeah, you guys know I loved, you know, Dashboard and like Saves the Day and Brand New. And, you know, in addition to my pop interest with every boy band ever. But also I was pirating CDs of WoW Worship. I, I was reliant on Reliant K. I had my hand in the jar of clay. I went to a Jars of Clay concert at King's Dominion, which is a Paramount amusement park. And that trip was ironic for two reasons. One, you know, to be praising the King of Kings, the Kingdom of God, it the juxtaposition with being at a King's Dominion, which is one of the only venues I've ever been to that can overcharge hardworking families in turn for, for a time that is both uh, mediocre and unsafe. <laughs> It's quite fascinating. It is very sticky. The clientele is interesting. They, I remember being at that cheap amphitheater and just thinking, Switchfoot's right. We were meant to live for so much more. Uh, get me in an arena. Get me out of this place. I, 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 
you know, that was not my favorite concert, but it was my first and it was memorable. So that was interesting. But also because um, I accidentally stole a WWJD bracelet. It was in my hand and I walked out and um, I walked into the car or bus or like wherever I was. I'm pretty sure this was the same trip because it was at a theme park. And uh, honestly, I thought I'd take that to the grave. Honestly, I thought the feds were coming after me. That is not what Jay would do. And I was mortified. I was terrified. I was scared my mom would find it. I don't know why my mom would find WWJD bracelet and be like, you stole this. Um, but, you know, just grateful to be able to come clean now. I I did all, all of this stuff, especially after we'd go to camp and I'd be all fired up on the Lord. Um, you know, I, I had an extreme teen Bible. I covered it with a book sock. I, I, I had a Jesus fish on everything. I, you know, I, I wrote scripture on my binder covers and on my walls. I practiced lettering with things like for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And he is the light that shines through the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it, which are two you know, pieces of scripture I still really do enjoy. I explored my emotional depth. I, I really got into it, but also I was like so out of it. And I think in retrospect, a lot of it's funny to me because I, uh, you know, I, I was there for the friendships and the snacks and the food and a little of the fellowship. And at times I'd get really intense about it. I did tell my sister she was going to hell after some underage drinking, which as you can imagine, went over well. I stopped witnessing in my own household following that. But, um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think I tried to, I watched Veggie Tales. I think I tried to get into, what is the Lost, Left Behind? I think I tried to get to the Left Behind series. I probably tried to impress some boys at a laser tag lock-in by telling them I like, you know, read Dr. James Dobson. I definitely didn't. He was just always in the church insert and he was like focusing on the family or something. I don't know. I, I went to Methodist church for the large bulk of my childhood with my family, though the youth groups were like uh, Episcopal or Assemblies of God. and. um on the but the camp was Southern Baptist. But actually, now if you ask me, I, I'd identify with the Catholic Church more than anything else. I was married there. My mom's a, a Catholic, and I feel like I've gone there the majority of my adult life. And don't get me wrong about all the issues I too have with that. Um, but I'm really all over the place, and now that I'm like articulating it, maybe this is why I'm confused. <laughs> um, but you know, I I remember all sorts of things that like yeah, in my youth were just like fun and whatever and was what it was. But as an adult, I'm like, I don't know if I would have put young girls through that. Um, I remember sitting on the floor of our cabin with our counselor that I, you know, again, with the like the any authoritative church figure that's teaching you something that seems so holy and perfect. You really kind of idolize and de not, they're almost not human. I thought every counselor I ever had, I thought was like so beautiful and so perfect. And like, I was so jealous. She probably had like a hot other counselor boyfriend. And uh you know, now I'm like, they're probably 19. Like, what were they even doing? They were out of high school. Like, did they, like, have another job? Was this their job? Um, now I'm kind of like, what were they doing? Uh, besides, you know, making us repent for the things we had done with boys. I remember, um, yeah, we, we, we sat there on the floor and we talked about, um, you know, sexual immorality and, you know, the temptations we would face and, you know, repenting for the ones we already succumbed to. Uh, I kind of, like, there's... We had to make lists of our the characteristics that our ideal husband would have. And then I think we turned them in or something. And um, not that I got in trouble, but I was told mine was uh, incorrect or, or needed to be modified. Because the very first characteristic I had on mine was, where's a watch? And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't ever know what time it is. I'm never on time. Know thyself. I knew thyself at a very young age. And we didn't have cell phones. So honestly, it was pretty practical. 
And also, my husband is a bit of a horology enthusiast, so it kind of worked out in my favor. I, I, I like what I like. But the reason that I guess it was incorrect or something is I guess that I missed the point of the lesson and that the first thing on my list was supposed to be that my husband would be a um, man of God, which, you know, that revs the engines for a teenager. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I respect that. And, and I think that's a great attribute. Um, but it's just kind of funny that my answer was wrong. Um, I am not kidding when I tell you, and apparently this isn't that unusual. I remember going to a New Year's retreat at that camp and our counselor very seriously, like not trying to be funny at all, told us she like stays up at night. And when she gets like tempting thoughts, she thinks of how sexy Jesus is and how like his muscles and that he's a carpenter and how like sexy it is that we're his. And I, like, honestly, in retrospect, like th like fetishizing modern imagery of, of Jesus as like a, a muscular tan man and would talk about it in a way that was like, Jesus would rather you think of him like this than your, you know, guys at your school. And I just like, that was one of the moments where I was like, and I'm out because I was a little bit older then and uh, definitely had kissed boys by then. And unlike the other girls in the circle that would run off to the bathroom and cry because they had some sort of misstep, I kind of had one foot in, one foot out because while I was part of like camp and youth group culture, because I didn't want to feel left out with my friends and like I'd subscribe to some of it. Um, my house, like my home wasn't like that. And my parents weren't like that. And they were normal. I know for lack of a better term, like the messaging was like very much don't like talk about sex and the importance of being like pure and chaste. And like, I don't know, I just didn't really feel at liberty to like go home and talk about it, which I know would upset my mom. But like, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's confusing when, um, you go somewhere and they operate in like this totally different code and alternate universe. And you do kind of get sucked up in it. And before you know it, you're being saved by like a Stacy and Melanie and a, like a campfire. And you're like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, and I was worried too. I'm like, if I went home and told my Catholic mother that we're being taught that like Jesus is sexy, like how many Hail Marys is that going to send her into? I, I, I thought, I felt like it seemed like they were changing the messaging to accommodate like girls that were getting older and like probably exper experimenting more and like getting more sexually driven. But like, didn't know how to shift the messaging to like make, I don't know, religion kind of like fulfill. I, I honestly couldn't even justify it if I tried. So I'm not going to, but um, it definitely, it was different. It was different. And I just, I don't know. Sometimes I like sh think at night about like, and I shudder about some of the girls that, that were like sitting in these circles and like our counselor kind of created this environment where it seemed safe to open up and almost seemed mandatory. And people would confess things that, honestly for high school kids were pretty mild you know like some honestly like this is like kind of weird but some girl like admitted to like going to sloppy seconds is what we called it in like uh early high school or something and um was so so ashamed and so upset and felt the need to have to tell us all and then the counselor kind of has like a disappointing but forgiving smile and then we all like pray over the person to get them forgiven and it's like what the hell was that? Like, you're forgiven if you ask for it yourself. There's no reason you should have to tell other people. There's no reason you should bring about that unnecessary shame to a situation that a person's already trying to deal with. There's no reason that a bunch of her, their peers that they shouldn't trust at that age should know, because I, as a 30-something-year-old, still remember it. Like, I just felt so bad at the tears and the shame and, like, Oh, I, I honestly like it's so weird to think about now, but 
it was like allegedly this like safe space in our cabin in our circle with this counselor that we I thought was like, you know, some sort of prophet or like know it all. But honestly, they were like 19. Like, who the hell knows what they were doing behind closed doors? But we were made to feel like any and all sin that had happened up until that point, we had to reveal to that group of strangers. And under this kind of convenient, oversimplified guise of religion, we should trust these effective strangers with this really private information. And then not only do we confess and like say they're forgiven and make them feel bad by kind of reinforcing that it's bad in nature and requires forgiveness, but to pray over you and almost patronize you uh, about the act is like, it's just, it's too much. It's, it's too much and it's unnecessary and it's so damaging. And I, I feel even bad being a part of it. And I wasn't even the target. And honestly, my experiences are mild. I didn't go to True Love Waits conferences. I didn't have a purity ball where my father and I signed a contract. A lot of people signed contracts and wore rings and I didn't do any of that. I don't think my dad would have ever done that. It's like it's like turning yourself into a commodity whose value only appreciates with your virtue kept. Like, no, I'm his daughter. I'm a human. It's it's so interesting. Looking back, I'm like, I didn't you didn't want to get closer to God. I think you I would as a byproduct because I would get sucked into it. But my intentions were so not pure. <laughs> my intentions were like, I I honestly, in my head, like, yeah, going to hell sucks. But you know what's worse? Uh, feeling left out. People joke about FOMO in adult life, but FOMO in middle school is so intense and strong. And like when because you, you are literally left out and then people talk about inside jokes and then they talk about the same things and I have the same stories. And like I remember being a pure form of torture when I missed something that my close friends did. And like I just had to be there on the scene. And looking back on it, I laughed because I think through my thought process in real time. And honestly, like, you know, I'd sing the worship songs. I'd, I'd throw out my hands. I'd look around and be like, are people kind of feeling something I'm not? Because I don't know if I'm feeling this, but OK, everyone else is doing it. But then I'd be really relieved when the song would come on and we had to do some tasteful sign language. So for a moment, I could stop praising and, um, you know, dance a little because I have a theory that so many uh, church songs it is involves sign language because they don't really want you to dance and move those hips. And even though I'm sure my seventh grade, you know, date to the dance would have been very impressed by my sign language lexicon at the time. I'm not sure he would have been, you know, too excited when I uh, signaled to him the only words I knew, which were mm, God, Jesus, Savior, saved, crucify, testify, heaven, earth, sky, grave, death, saved, Savior more death. Awesome. God. Awesome. <laughs> I always say that because that song is like, our God is an awesome God. It's a very repetitive uh, sign language motion. Those in the biz will know. <laughs> Beyond that, I could sign heal the world. There are people dying. I guarantee 75% of you know how to sign the words people dying because of Michael Jackson's heal the world in some weird elementary school like recital you had to do. Um, but yes, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't exactly uh, taking, you know, my talents back to middle school of my ability to sign various religious imagery to the tune of songs by Mercy Me. And I have to be honest, part of this that makes me laugh is I, I feel like, uh, you know, now knowing myself as an Enneagram for INFP, I understand myself a little more, I'm more of a romantic, I'm more emotionally intense. And um, my whole life I felt this way, but I didn't really know how to define it or justify it. and. I very much, as a, even as a young person, like wanted love, wanted to be loved, was very boy crazy. And um, looking back on my time in some of these places, honestly, 
yeah, I was there to like praise be and, and to pray and like be with friends and worship and all, all that good stuff. I'm I'm sure I was pure of heart in some way, shape or form. But in the other way, shape and form, I was there to scope out the youth pastor mega hotties because there are two types. <laughs> There's the straight edge emo, you know, studded belt, skinny jean, T-shirt from a mission trip or appropriated logo from another business like Subway turned into his way. They probably had gauges or is that what it's called? Yeah. When you have, hole, you, you have holes in your earlobes. They were brooding. They had chains that like went from their wallet to, to like their pants and keys. And uh, they wore vans and they very much were on the emo scene. But in addition to, you know, the typical, the usual suspects, the dashboards and co, they also were very into bands like, I don't know, Hoobastank and played instruments themselves, which only adds to their attraction. And, you know, on this podcast before, I've, I've referred to something I like to call youth pastor good looks, which is a boyish mark of innocence paired with uh, almost these like classic all-American good looks that um, have a boyish pink-cheeked charm paired with a low-key sexiness that they don't realize because they their good looks are so disproportionate to how much sex they're having that I don't even think they realize it. And they're so they're actively repelling female attention. So I'm I kind of think uh, part of me was just like so fascinated by the like these two types of very different guys that seem to be like so devout and like even though only one identified as straight edge, the other one didn't like drink or smoke either. But for some reason, like if you were straight edge, like you had to tell everyone about it. And um, I just like loved that. The, the entire vibe was like honoring women. I was like, okay, yes, this is the air I breathe. I'm Samantha. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was like so fixated on this random dude I talked to on AIM. I still don't know how old he was, where he lived or what he was about. But his screen name was Chill Puppy. And we had a thing. It was whatever. But, you know, sometimes I do question my intentions looking back. And uh, I feel like I was a little, you know, I was still very much me in the context of a church and cared about the same things. And I, you know, looking back, I'm surprised somebody wasn't like, you know, what, girlfriend, a little less saved by the bell, a little more saved by Christ. You come here every summer and you have to get your soul saved over and over again. And maybe you should just like stop going home and like, you know, eating junk food and making bad decisions and having, you know, in inappropriate thoughts about our youth pastors. But what are you going to do? Um, I'll stop soon. I just I love reminiscing about this there at the camp I went to. I think I've talked about before how they would, you know, you get to the top of the rock wall, which is like pretty high. And there's like some more complicated ones. And you'd be up there and then belay or like they dangle you until you said uh, a Bible verse, like script quoted scripture verbatim. But they were kind of picky about it. Like it couldn't be John 316. It's like at the bottom of a forever 21 bag. They wanted us to try a little harder. Typically, the old standby Philippians 4.13 would work. You know, if you were feeling like a funny guy, you could always venture into a little Genesis 1.1 in the beginning. But uh, unfortunately, it would also be the end of your comedy career because the counselors did not like this. It was like, I, I do not, the, the logic behind dangling a minor um, from a rock wall until they recite scripture verbatim after just accomplishing some major feat is is so strange it's so strange and it's something that no parent would ever really want it's not like that serious but like it's strange i don't think we overthought it i think we thought that's what everybody did at summer camp and um we laughed a lot we played a lot we water skied we swam we climbed we did archery i mean 
we did all the things. It was like a classic American summer camp that honestly, I think there's so many positives that stemmed from it. The As I got older and I detached a little bit, I, you know, I, I started feeling weird about being like almost like driving age and being at a camp singing like, I like papayas. You know what I mean? It's just like getting a little weird or like, you know, then things would, it would kind of like creep into like school. And, um, you know, I was fine like going to youth group on Sunday, but I didn't really like the things that like bridged it with school because they were always in the morning. And like, there's this one thing that in addition to the Jesus is sexy thing kind of sealed the deal in high school. It's called See You at the Pole. And it was meant like all like at 7 a.m. All the um, kids that wanted to like be, you know, upfront about their Christianity would like meet at the flagpole and you like form a circle and you like pray for the school. But the point was kind of that like everybody would arrive to school while you were out there, like all wearing the same T-shirt at the pole praying for the school. And it was almost like an opportunity to like witness and try to bring people to Christ, which was never my jam. And this is the part where I think I identify uh, far more with my Catholic mother in that I've probably, I was baptized Methodist, but I spent a lot of time in the Catholic church and I was married in it. And in my adult life, I definitely have. And like, this is, I mean, here's the thing, don't even get me started on, on the Catholic church. There's so many issues with so many religious organizations that are deep and dark and scary. And like, th this is why I, I don't know, like I consider myself actually still fairly religious and spiritual, but just in a completely different way than I once was. I think the older I got, the more I grew concerned with what I was learning about the, the flaws of organizations run by man taking a lot of liberty with the gospel and or people being uh, leaders of the church with sinister intentions and just the uh, confusing concept of how unprovable somebody's malintent is in the church because the result they're promising being something uh, vague and ambiguous that requires faith like your salvation, like eternity, like God's love, like God's approval. These things cannot be proven or disproven. When with faith, believing is seeing. And um, I think, I don't know, I kind of separated myself a great deal from uh, going to church. But the thing I like about it, I I think it's great when, you know, a family can go to the same place every Sunday. I think it's great to learn to sit still as a kid and to know someone's watching out for you and to kind of have the consistency in the community and the fellowship. And I, I, I like as an adult to go sit in like a beautiful place and think uh, and almost see it as like a more meditative experience. I think, um, you know, what I meant by identifying more with the, the Catholic part of my life is I, I am, I'm not, a, I'm not an expressive person outwardly. I, even though I like live music and I like the church bands, Catholic, you go anywhere in the world and like mass is the same, you know? And, um, when I studied abroad, I started going to mass and thought it was really beautiful that it was in different languages, yet I still knew what was going on. And I don't know, not that that's that relevant, but in case you're curious of where I, uh, stand now. But I also think, too, you're kind of drawn to like tradition and your family and uh, it's something important to, you know, my mom and my grandfather. And like, you know, there's an there's a part of you that like wants to be a part of the thing that means a lot to the people you love. And what I also have always thought was interesting is like, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, big, big Mary stands. Love Mary. 
not a lot of talk of Mary and uh, the other churches I went to. It's not like a worship of Mary, it's just a veneration of her in the sense that, you know, there, there's specific prayers directed toward her and whatnot. And I just feel like her, she's a definite focal point. And, um, you know, maybe this is, this is all loop, it's all loops into the, 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 the same issue I always had in that uh, I just feel more comfortable talking to women. Big Mary fan over here. Anyway, I hope you guys know I'm, t- I'm speaking lightheartedly about these things. I know we all come from different places, believe different things, but there's recognizable themes within church. And um, I think, you know, at a point, if you can't like laugh about your church attending experience, like there's a human element here of like, we all have our own like journey with church and um, our observations of what works, what doesn't, what we like, what we don't. I think everyone's entitled to have their absolute own relationship with whether an institution, whether whoever it is they choose to worship and their individual relationship. I really don't care. Like I have nothing against any of the uh, beliefs. And I, since we're all coming from different places and I'm not sitting here preaching, I'm just trying to lightheartedly graze the surface of some of my experiences so we can talk about it, but not, you know, I don't want anybody feeling coming away from this feeling like, there's anything wrong with going to church or anything wrong with religion. Absolutely not. This is more an effort to like uh, reflect on a more extreme experience I had in my youth and why it was a wholesome and great because of all the things I talked about earlier that were so fun. But B, what I'll get into now, which is even though in real time it was all wholesome and great, some of the things that I didn't notice were being said and how they would affect me and, you know, obviously my listeners going forward. Also, I feel like I realize that there's more, um, you know, liberty to uh, uh, speak about uh, religion in a, in a secular format or in like a artistic format without being taboo or offensive. After the Met Gala's theme, <laughs> remember when everybody dresses like popes? That was bizarre. And it seemed like a little bit appropriative. Is that a word? It was like Catholic in the fashion imagination. I think I talk about it in an old podcast episode called Met Gala Goddesses and Brianna is in the Wallace Department Store Wallaces, where, you know, as one does, I have a, a, a podcast episode split between two very commonly discussed uh, and related topics. The uh, Catholic Church and the Mary-Kate and Ashley hit movie film filmed at the world-renowned Atlantis Resort, Holiday in the Sun. And this summer, I want Jordan. Um, actually, I think next week we... <laughs> Next week, we have a great Under the Influencer coming up, and I think we talk about Holiday in the Sun. Um, anyway, I was I talking about the Catholic Church all of a sudden? Oh, um, oh, <laughs> because it, uh, the I felt uncomfortable with, like, giving test, like, a public testimony in front of a large group of people when I, you know, as a 12, 13-year-old. 12, and also, there was a lot of focus on, like, witnessing, and, like, a lot of my friends would kind of, like, I don't know, I feel like you get kind of pressured into if somebody was doing something like ungodly, like needing to like pray for them or over them or like give them scripture. And I'm just not a natural salesperson in that way. I, 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 I can't, I couldn't sell the word of Jesus. I couldn't sell Girl Scout cookies. I couldn't sell, uh, you know, wrapping paper. I wanted all the prizes for the magazine drive and the wrapping paper drive. I was so jealous of people that took the cataloged their mom or dad's office and inexplicably they opted to buy uh, several rolls of wrapping paper that not only were overpriced but also would take four to six weeks to arrive when they could get them at the store half price tomorrow 
it made no sense. And I never could get past it. And I, I've, I've struggled with fundraising of any kind. If I could fundraise, I would have joined like, not the junior league, but like something like that by now to make friends. But I'm terrified they're going to ask me to fundraise or worse, participate. Um, <laughs> anyway, I just, I don't know. There's a lot of things like they always wanted us to give testimonials. And I was like, I'm 12. I don't know. <laughs> and I know hopping between high school and middle school here, but it depends on what it was. Um, and people will give these really meaningful, beautiful testimonials about and they always, always, always involved like having sex or like heavy petting. And um, honestly, I was kind of there for the juice. But also it, I felt really bad for everybody because I'm like, I feel bad that they feel like they have to tell people. It's one thing to broad strokes talk about it. But I feel like we were told like kind of specifically where people had misstepped almost in, in an instructive way. So like we would either admit to it ourselves or not do it or to scare us out of doing it. Um, but anyway, beyond all of that stuff. Remind me to tell you a story about Shaggy, the the the, the musical artist Shaggy later. Uh, I I would, but I'd get off course. It, it's about what I would put in my testimonial as a trying time in my seventh grade life. Um, but anyway, point being, you know, I have a lot of I have a lot of fun memories, a lot of funny memories about thinking about my motivations, intentions relative to what was actually going on. But I think what I'm so fascinated by in retrospect is like. Of all things you can focus on with with young people, you know, getting good grades, respecting your parents, avoiding like drinking and drugs. Like, I mean, just like not lying, cheating or stealing, uh, you know, being kind to your classmates and, you know, focusing on not bullying. And I mean, there's just a lot of things you can focus on with young people, but I will never get over how like almost the center of everything we talk, talked about would lead back to sexual immorality. Everyone's testimonials were about how they would stumble. Everybody was like praying for themselves or another anonymous friend they had that had, you know, uh, committed some crimes of heavy petting over the weekend. And like there were there were these young men that were constantly not only telling us stories about um, how their sexual temptations, but actively making sure we knew how important it was to repress ours. And I just feel like strangely and trying to keep us sexless we were over sexualized and it was making me think about it more and um i just don't get the obsession there and especially with young women and these are things i didn't really think about till much later on like my you know in my 20s my my thoughts on religion completely like it turned on its head i when i you know moved like left virginia and didn't go to the camps anymore in north carolina and went to New York and San Francisco and Chicago. And I met all sorts of people from all religions, walks of life, backgrounds. Um, and uh, until I experienced firsthand people experiencing hard times, people being discriminated against and people, you know, in my immediate life, enduring some of the judgments that the, the very groups I used to be a part of endorsed until that at th that point, I didn't really get it. I think most people, if somebody you love and care about is going through something, you, regardless of what it is, want the best for them, know that they feel that they deserve to be happy and want people around them to give them grace and understanding as they work through it. And when you don't know people, it's so easy to make a blanket statement about how you feel about something. But as you go through life and meet people from all over and realize, you know, circumstances are important. Context is important. There's a lot of reasons why people might do the things they do and people are allowed to make mistakes. And, you know, whether it's Having friends going through, you know, difficult mental health periods, whether it's having a friend come out to me and thinking I would have an issue with it or like I'd look look at them any less and or, you know, just marriages and divorces and things that 
are inevitable things in life that happen. And the, the purpose of life is, is not to look around you and condemn everybody that doesn't believe or do exactly what you feel they should be doing. I mean, to me, like, you know, the strongest faith, uh, the, the, the most true beliefs are those that are not threatened by the actions or belief of other people. They, they can coexist with differing opinions. It's important they coexist with differing opinions. And I think that I, you know, even though I love to coexist bumper sticker, I didn't really understand, um, you know, how important it was to lead with empathy and love and understanding far more than uh, rules and restrictions and how off-putting it is to project those things onto people that aren't really looking for it and how it, it doesn't help your cause. It doesn't convert more people. It, it, makes, it makes you look bad and it makes you look way more uh, concerned with your own agenda than being a helpful, kind, empathetic person that wants the best for another. And I think there are, you know, there's time and a place if you want to witness, if you want to, you know, bring people to Christ, that's great. I just think that the way I was taught to is a bit aggressive. And um, also, even if I wanted to be aggressively converting people in my 20s, I think that when I met people experiencing things that I was taught to be very harshly judgmental of, I realized I didn't actually in my heart believe what I was told and that I needed to completely reevaluate my own definition of truth. And that's when I kind of became a little bit bitter that I didn't have a clean slate, that when I was so young, you know, I think I would have, I, you know, from my, my parents and my friends and school and like the various inputs I had, I think I, and my nature, you know, I think I would have made the right decisions anyway, but in this guilty until proven innocent model where, you know, you, you as a young person in, in these youth groups, I just felt not trusted. Not only is, you know, your human sexuality not trusted, but you're just kind of go in there and they're like, you're a sinner. You are broken. You are going to do all these things wrong. Repent. You need forgiveness. And I'm like, what did I do? Like, I, I think it was hard for me to really understand. And like, I didn't realize that a lot of the time I, I was made to feel really badly and I was made to feel really guilty. And I think I was missed out on a lot of joy because of that. When I really was a pretty good kid, I don't know that I needed to at such a young age be um, pondering the implications of, of eternity when I really should have just been like playing after school tennis. Um, I I don't know. I, I think that there was a lot of good things, but I in my 20s, I was kind of like, I don't know. A lot of them didn't sit with me very well, but it wasn't the purity piece that hit me till way later. Um, specifically after a conversation with a friend th three or four years ago that uh, mentioned she had been, I hadn't seen her in a long time. She's a friend from childhood. We went and got margaritas when she was in town. And she asked me like, how I feel about a lot of the super conservative stuff we were taught as it relates to being a, a woman and kind of, you know, being second fiddle to men and uh, sexual purity and, uh, you know, doing stuff before marriage and all, whatever. And I was like, oh, you know, I was like, I don't know. I hadn't really like, I don't, I haven't really subscribed to that in years. Like, I don't really think about it. Like, you know, I'm glad I didn't sleep around in high school because I didn't need to be, but I don't think I would have been anyway. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. And then she was telling me about, um, how her, she had been going to therapy and she didn't really realize it. And she was having like a lot of discomfort with, um, you know, taught, not only talking about sex and communicating about sex, but having very like, uh, extreme reactions, like 
wanting to have an active sex life and wanting to explore, but feeling like this extreme anxiousness and guilt and like kind of the pendulum would swing back and forth and she couldn't enjoy or have any sort of pleasure without feeling like, like guilt and, and despair and like all this stuff. And um, how her, her therapist is kind of like trying to deconstruct it and how much of it was rooted in us being like completely uh, shamed and told that we were responsible for um, not making men stumble and how we needed to cover up our bodies and how we were kind of treated like these seductresses before we even like had boobs. And like, I was like, oh yeah, well, yeah, I definitely thought about that. Like I had intellectually thought about like, God, that was a creepy amount of focus on our sexuality. And um, I think since I, you know, probably left all of that stuff before other people did, I maybe had like a close to a decade to kind of reform and heal from it. But there's some like underlying themes that I don't think I even pinpointed. And not that the, the point is to, you know, bring all this to the surface, but rather it kind of helped me process a lot of like, I am the way I am things. And you know, you know, sometimes you're just like, yep, this is me. And you don't put a lot of analysis into it. I'm like, well, is it me? Like what influenced that? And like, why has it always been this way? And anyway, so she and, and a lot of people I know had a more like extreme physical manifestation of anxiety surrounding sex. And it, I mean, it made me really like retrace and rethink a lot of stuff from like college and life and how, I don't know. I think for me, it was just more of like, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't, I don't want to talk oh, too much about myself. It's just, I think for me, it was more like, uh, a major discomfort uh, talking to men, a major discomfort with my body, feeling like uncomfortable talking to anybody married in a relationship, whatever, like I was uh, going to be doing something wrong. I really was not a flirt. I had people in college like be like, are you OK? Like, you don't flirt. Are you somebody would like joke that they're like, you're kind of asexual, which is kind of a mean thing to say if you're not. Um, but like, I just wasn't comfortable being flirty, being sexy. Uh, I I like would try, but it wouldn't land. Nobody would ever seriously date me. I felt like all my friends were so experienced and seasoned and doing all these things and talking openly about sex. I couldn't talk about it at all. I never would, never could. I was shocked when I got into my sorority and how people were just talking to, to me, everybody about their sex lives wildly and proudly. And I just was like, oh my God, I I never heard or seen anything like it. And I felt so like weird and naive and uncomfortable because I had never really had those conversations with anybody. I never really knew anybody that was, um, that advanced, to be honest. And like, I think anything I did up until that point was just like, cause I felt like everybody else was not cause I wanted to. And I feel like, um, you know, until I met my husband, I never met a guy that genuinely respected me. Cause I don't know if I respected myself and I don't know. I don't think I knew what I wanted, knew how to ask for anything. And I, it makes me actually quite sad to look back on. And, um, it's funny how I really just didn't overthink it. Cause I was like, that's what college kids do. Uh, but when I think about how much of a struggle it was for me to feel like a, you know, an inexperienced fish out of water that was really embarrassed. She didn't understand half the stuff people were doing or talking about and feeling like I was going to be behind or wouldn't get a boyfriend or wouldn't be cool if I didn't kind of like get caught up to speed. And like to this day, if I wear a cleavage top, I feel like a, a harlot. I'm like, I, I feel like a slut whore monster. It's like, just out, you know, on the town trying to get people to look at her. And then when people look at me, I feel so filthy and disgusting and gross and I'll change. Like, I feel really gross when I notice people are looking at me and I feel like it's my fault. And I feel um, I was drove a Bev cart for a really long time, which on a golf course, you're just like this young girl who like 
it's, it's kind of weirdly a, 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 a way I profited off of some low-key misogyny in my youth, but it was a good job and I needed to save up for study abroad. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know. I just was like, I couldn't really make eye contact with a lot of the men. I felt uncomfortable knowing that I was kind of like this token person that was kind of supposed to be objectified. I, um, really like think back on like friends with benefit situations and how nobody would ever date me. And how I'd be like, quote unquote, like in love with these people that weren't interested. And like, there was this detachment there where I couldn't connect a physical relationship in a romantic one. They almost had to be compartmentalized. Um, because like I didn't understand their connection because it was kind of that like uh uh you know Madonna whore complex of like you know you're either a, a a you know woman of virtue and like a virginal person someone wants to marry or you're like the whore that they want to sleep with and I that these are two tropes these are two uh, this is a double standard that's impossibly thrust upon women that I didn't even think I was experiencing but like I think you know the old version of me felt that what men wanted was like the, you know, virginal, holy type. And then, in you know, as I got older, I felt like men wanted the more temptress type and that was being revered. And I didn't really understand the difference. I didn't understand if they were the same person. I didn't know how to be that person. And I couldn't really, uh, I didn't really understand healthy relationships, to be honest, to the fault of nobody other than a lack of experience. Because when you kind of, um, I don't know, when you try to restrict people and hold them back and i understand when it's for safety and i understand that it's good to prevent skinned knees but i needed to i needed to figure things out for myself and i needed to not get a place where i was a little bit too old and feeling embarrassed and therefore not communicating any of this i just think i have an, funny small tendencies that don't really affect my life but that are definitely from the way sex was talked about when i was a kid like i can't i like i have trouble watching sex scenes in movies I feel really gross. I'll feel really bad for the woman. I don't know why. I'll feel like the like kind of dirty if I like I I just I'm not enticed by it. Instead, I feel like very detached and like grossed out as if the person's being like forced to do something they want because I think I'm projecting guilt onto them, even though I today am like fine as a married person. But like, I think still somewhere in my instincts lies this person that um that, you know, outside of my own situation that I'm comfortable with, like thinks it's bad. And uh, I don't know. It's like it's very, very strange. But anyway, to get to the point um, uh, in terms of like what is actually taught. And I'm trying to talk about this a bit more high level than my own experience, because I think my own experience is quite mild. Actually, uh, we I was spared of a lot of the metaphors. I was spared of a lot of the uh, you know, I didn't go to a purity ball or any of that stuff. But, um, you know, at different churches from, you know, even the Catholic Church preached true love weights. A lot of the more extreme things typically are involved with the Southern Baptist and more evangelical model of church. But um, the, the way that purity is, is spoken about, purity culture is a, the term used for the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of purity by discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage, often through the use of tools such as purity pledges, symbols such as purity rings, and events such as purity balls. Purity pledges are vows taken by teenagers and young adults to abstain from sex before marriage. A prime example is the original pledge from True Love Waits, started in 1993, which read, Believing that True Love Waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, those I date, and my future mate to be sexually pure until the day enter marriage. Purity rings are sometimes worn as outward symbols of those who have made a purity pledge. The rings were popularized by the Christian ministry, the Silver Ring Thing, which promoted abstinence primarily through music events. A decade ago, the rings were worn by several young actors and pop stars, including Miley Cyrus, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, and the Jonas Brothers. 
Purity balls, or father-daughter purity balls, are formal dance events attended by fathers and their daughters that promote virginity until marriage for teenage girls. At the balls, fathers would often sign a pledge that they would be the example of purity and model integrity for their daughter. The dances were originally conceived in 1998 by a California couple as a way of celebrating God's design and life's little growth spurts. I'm trying to read like a fairly uh, uh, objective description of this first, and then I'll kind of go into some of uh, my thoughts, interpretations, and experiences on some of these things. But in terms of how the movement got started, according to TGC, the purity culture movement began in the 1990s as Christians who were children or teens during the beginning of the 1960s era sexual revolution began to have children and teenagers of their own. By the early 1990s, AIDS had become the number one cause of death in the United States for men 25 to 44, and the teen pregnancy rate had reached an all-time high. The number of premarital sex partners had also increased substantially since the 70s. For example, in the 70s, only 2% of American women had more than 10 sexual partners before marriage. In the 1990s, that percentage had increased to 10%, and in 2010, it was around 18% for reference. At the time, many evangelicals were reacting to the negative effects of sex outside of marriage and attempted to once again ground sexuality in biblical ethics. In 1992, Richard Ross, a youth ministry consultant at Lifeway Christian Resources, presented the theme of True Love Waits in a brainstorming session for a potential Christian sex ed campaign. A year later, Southern Baptists adopted the program with the goal of 100,000 signed commitment cards, i.e. purity pledges, by the time of their next annual convention. In 1994, True Love Waits held a rally in D.C. with 25,000 youth and displayed 210,000 commitment cards on the National Mall between the Capitol and the Washington Monument. Four years later, Josh Harris published published his first book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which promoted abstinence and popularized the concept of courting as an alternative to dating. The book went on to sell more than a million copies and became a primary text of the purity culture movement. A study in 2009 uh, found that the sexual behavior of teens who had taken a purity pledge does not differ from that of closely matched non-pledgers. Five years after the pledge, 82% of pledgers denied having ever pledged. Another study found the sexually transmitted diseases infection rate of those who had taken the pledge also did not differ from non-pledgers. I'm going to read a few different definitions. So that was from like a reformed evangelical church website. I went to look to see Hillsong, the church, uh, you know, the, the mega church that Justin Bieber Selena Gomez, Kendall, Kylie, Haley, Chris Pratt, all the people. The, the, it's the mega church that uh, is has Carl Lentz, the kind of celebrity pastor. He wears Yeezys. It's a very controversial church. It has uh, Pentecostal Australian roots. They make millions and millions of dollars, uh, disclose very little of their financials, and I am very fascinated by them. They, I mean, their churches are everywhere. Like, I'm sure if there's a mega church in your city, it's like a Hillsong derivative. They have a lot of, uh, like, pop gospel music on Spotify and that they sell. They, I mean, they're literally everywhere. And they, as you know, I, I have a handful of issues with religious institutions that I try to keep separate. And honestly, I almost did a separate podcast episode about this. But I don't want to become a podcast that obsessively talks about shortcomings of uh, what I think are uh, issues of modern churches. Um, but I do think that there is an element of fascinating um, greed that is hugely overlooked as it relates to uh, churches getting all of the privileges of, you know, being a charity, yet being hardly charitable whatsoever. I'm coming at you from the beyond right now. Right 
at this point, I go into a tangent that is a half hour where I talk about tithing policies in various denominations uh, when it isn't as mandatory and looking at financial statements and uh, uh, comparing uh, charitable donations relative to the perceived net worth and uh, my thoughts uh, theologically on both pastors, you know, having to balance sacrifice and freedom, but also, uh, you know, what you require of your members and also the way, uh, you know, kind of prosperity gospel is um, utilized in many churches to uh, get money to plant seeds that you should be making money hand over fist. And trust me, if that were the case, I would have, you know, invested in some stocks and bonds with the big guy a long time ago. Unfortunately, that's just not practical economics. Uh, and there's not a lot of data to show that. But unfortunately, when it, as it relates to the church, these things aren't provable. You can't prove God's not going to give you abundance going forward. You can't prove that, uh, you know, your pastor or who, your church leader doesn't have some divine ability to tell you that God wants you to give money. It's all, this is why it's all confusing. This is why it's all has such potential for corruption. Anyway, what I'm going to do is either gauge if I should put it at the end of this episode, put it on Patreon, or I don't know. I just wanted to say like, sorry if this is choppy, but I decided that like, I can't talk about this for 30 minutes in an episode that's not supposed to be about this. <laughs> I'm trying to focus. <laughs> so, uh, Stay tuned. I'll, I'll I'll tell you where you can find all of that. Spoiler alert: There's a particular church that has um, it's worth rumored to be worth anywhere from sixty-seven to a hundred billion dollars. And the only data we have is that they donated less than 0.7 percent over the past twenty-five years to uh, to to charity, uh, which is almost so unbelievable. I can't even believe it's true because it would be absolutely deplorable to not pay taxes and to only be giving that amount to those outside the church because it's a very different thing to um you know to just have church programs that are promoting your beliefs the evangelizing of your beliefs and the spreading of your congregation because then it that's kind of becomes a circle of more and more fundraising uh the, you know the nature of charity is and it does doesn't benefit the organization that whose virtue is allegedly charitable charity in and of itself is about giving <laughs> externally to those in need and um you know yes those might be in need of faith, but those are far more in need of food, of shelter, uh, of uh, humanitarian aid, of schools, of hospitals, of of social services, of all the things. And whew, girlfriend got on a tangent. Anyway, back to purity. So I read you one definition. Uh, this is, for example, is the um, just to like show different uh, spectrums of Christianity. This is the definition of purity, purity as it relates to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It says physical intimacy between husband and wife is beautiful and sacred. It is ordained of God for the creation of children and for the expression of love between husband and wife. God has commanded that sexual intimacy be reserved for marriage. When you are sexually pure, you prepare yourself to make and keep sacred covenants in the temple. You prepare yourself to build a strong marriage and to bring children into the world as part of an eternal and loving family. You protect yourself from the spiritual and emotional damage that come from sharing sexual intimacy outside of marriage. You also protect yourself from harmful diseases. Remaining sexually pure helps you be confident and truly happy and improves your ability to make good decisions now and in the future. The Lord's standard regarding sexual purity is clear and unchanging. Do not have any sexual relations before marriage and be completely faithful to your spouse after marriage. Do not allow the media, your peers, or others to persuade you that sexual intimacy before marriage is acceptable. It is not. In God's sight, sexual sins are extremely serious. They defile the sacred power God has given to us to create life. The prophet Alma taught that sexual sins are more serious than any other sins except murder or denying the Holy Ghost. So it's it's pretty specific. It says, Before marriage, do not participate in passionate kissing. Lie on top of a 
eat, wait, before marriage, do not participate in passionate kissing, lie on top of another person, or touch the private sacred parts of another person's body with or without clothing. Do not do anything else that arouses sexual feelings. Do not arouse those emotions in your own body. Pay attention to the promptings of the spirit so that you can be clean and virtuous. The spirit of the Lord will withdraw from one who is in sexual transgression. Avoid situations that invite increased temptation, such as late night or overnight activities away from home or activities where there's a lack of adult supervision. Do not participate in discussions or any media that arouse sexual feelings. Do not participate in any type of pornography. The spirit can help you know when you are at risk and give you the strength to remove yourself from the situation. Homosexual and lesbian behavior is a serious sin. If you find yourself struggling with same-gender attraction or you are being persuaded to participate in inappropriate behavior, seek counsel from your parents and bishop. They will help you. You know I'm not going to breeze past that one. I don't ever know who's out there. And I'm just like, I have a responsibility of talking to thousands of people. And I'd be remiss not to once again remind anybody out there, young or old, eh, my God, it's fine if you're gay. It's fine if you're bisexual. It's fine if you're, you don't identify with your gender. Any, any, any part of the spectrum of LGBTQ, if you're just questioning, you're not sure, you're exploring, like, it's fine, you're going to be fine. And I'm sorry if people treat you like you're anything that's not completely and entirely equal and loved and as respected as everybody else. You deserve it and you'll find it. And the small reference groups that seem to be the entire universe when we're young, we realize are actually quite small when we get older and get to have other opportunities and to meet other types of people. And um, I don't know. I just always want people to hang in there and realize that, like, you know, no pun intended, the things that people tell us when we're young are not always gospel. They're projections of their own experiences and opinions that really can be quite off base from the rest of the world. And, you know, I just fundamentally have such an issue these days, too, with how, you know, I, I was reading Hillsong's policy. I was reading the Methodist Church's policy. I was reading um, uh, the, the, you know, having just read the LDS policy. Um, it, what's frustrating to me is kind of this uh, pandering to hot button social issues and churches changing their, uh, the way that they communicate their thoughts on homosexuality to being like, we welcome gay people into the church. We just don't affirm their lifestyle. <sighs> that, that's contradictory in nature. That is to say you respect somebody for who they are, but also rebuke everything about who, what who they are represents is kind of that, you know, for lack of a better term, not to point fingers, it's a bit of like kind of a, a homophobic dog whistle of like, I'm trying to appease the masses by saying I'm cool with this thing, but actually contradicting it directly so as not to piss off you know, the tenets of the thing I believe in, because we're not actually changing. We're just saying, you know, we welcome you, but, you know, we don't think you should have rights. It's frustrating. And again, hopping off horse, I just, you know, got to throw that in there. I just never know who's listening. I figured I'd read uh, their stance on it just because we've talked a lot about the Mormon church and it's not that dissimilar from most other churches. And I have to say, uh, what I was glad to see is this statement that is right below it in this pamphlet. Also, I should just say, like, it, like literally the church I go to with my family, like every, all these churches still have these same policies. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying I, I fundamentally disagree with it. And I think that we all, all kind of have to face at times the issue of, you know, even if we disagree with some things, uh, you know, we have to kind of accept it for what it is. And while it's not great, I understand still being a part of a church that has elements you don't agree with and you know, modifying it to how you want to practice it. And I just don't want to offend anybody because I know a lot of this you can't necessarily help. But, you know, I will say I was relieved to see this paragraph below that this says victims of sexual abuse are not guilty of sin and do not need to repent. 
If you have been a victim of abuse, know that you are innocent and that God loves you. Talk to your parents or another trusted adult and seek your bishop's counsel immediately. They can support you spiritually and assist you in getting the protection and help you need. The process of healing may take time. Trust in the Savior. He will heal and give you peace. Um, I am glad to see, I am like, that is such an important message. You are not guilty of sin. You do not need to repent. This is a big part of what I never heard in the, um, you know, in the, in the Southern Baptist Assemblies of God persuasion that I think is so important to highlight. And I sincerely appreciate that this is here. Um, the only thing I would say is, uh, you know, yes, talk to your parents and trusted adult and law enforcement. Uh, I don't think you should go to your bishop immediately. I don't actually think that um, that is that is a logical line of command, um, because uh, if you were abused, assaulted, that is a, that is breaking the law. And um, sometimes not all the time. There have been cases in the past in my own church uh, where if you go to an institution first before you go to law enforcement, they, the priority becomes covering the their tracks. It becomes a concern of liability instead of what's in your best interest. And the church is not going to work to spiritually guide and protect you. They are going to get their lawyers involved and uh, guide and protect themselves. I do not know if this is true. I was watching a video about this, not from an ex-Mormon site. Uh, it was a, like a news report about sexual assault and um, how it's handled in the Mormon church, because obviously it's been very mishandled in the Catholic church and a lot of Protestant churches. I, I mean, truly, this is a this is a rampant problem in every organization. Um, but specifically, there's a like a hotline that bishops can call if there's sexual assaults within the church reported. But it's not a hotline. It goes directly to the um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints lawyers. You know what I mean? So like, while this isn't necessarily always the case, and this is an example in a specific news story, and I cannot prevent nor correct for any uh, bias that comes from the way people report things, but this is the information that's out there that I think is interesting. Um, but in general, that's kind of par for the course is for an organization with a lot of money and a lot of power that is much greater than your in individual incidents to, to be more concerned with themselves than with you. And then they get power over the narrative and then they say what you do and don't, you can and can't say, and it becomes a really impossible situation where you're made to feel powerless. And it's not, uh, I, I, I'm not saying that's true for every situation, but there are plenty of examples in history with any church where that has happened, even at universities. And, and like, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a big thing and I don't know, whatever. I just keep using, I'm like, I, 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 with every like nuance, I feel like the, I'm like, I must use my platform for this, but I just want to remind people if somebody commits a crime against you, it is sexual assault, sexual abuse, these things are against the law, and they should be handled by law enforcement, not by your church, not by your college, not by any other institution, your your job, whatever. Um, it's very, very important that not only you get justice for yourself, but also that these people are stopped and don't hurt other people. And, um, you know, just just uh, a friendly reminder from your neighborhood podcaster. Now I can't remember if I told you, what, did I tell you what book I'm reading? I'm like losing my place. Friendly reminder, it's by uh, Linda K. Klein. It's called Pure. And I'll quote it a lot. That's why I just want you to know where it's from. And I want you guys to read it if you want more information on any of this. There's a couple things I'd read, actually, that uh, listeners recommended to me, which I so appreciate. Um, and the subtitle of Linda K. Klein's book, Pure, is the subtitle is Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Young Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. And uh, there's a good one called uh, The Purity Myth, How America's Obsession with Virginity is Hurting Young Women by Jessica Valenti. I think is a really interesting look at how um, uh, these kind of conservative uh, Christian beliefs about virginity and this uh, hypersexualization of of young women in attempt to desexualize them it, it trickles into politics, into pop culture, into um, you know sex ed. 
it it, it really kind of filters this uh, these these old tropes of these this virginal concept of these you know wholesome meek uh, desirable women whose uh, desirability is directly proportionate to their virginity and it's almost fetishized. I think that's like a really interesting perspective on it uh, because it is, and it's it's you know one of the oldest kind of stereo typical you know movie and tv plot lines in the book the madonna horror complex it's a lot of double standards a lot of um unfair judgment if you aren't a virgin and unnecessary creepy reverence if you are and i just i don't know i long story short that's i think that's a very interesting focus and especially tied to pop culture as it relates to um purity culture anyway so i think what i read earlier you know from the the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints from the Reformed Pentecostal Church. I mean, there's a lot of different definitions I could read. I was kind of showing you two different ends of the spectrum. Um, those are those are actually more about abstinence than purity, um, because the way purity is supposed to be taught. So to quote TGC again, when most of us hear the word purity, our minds automatically think of abstinence or virginity, but it's far greater than the two. A person can be a virgin and still not be pure. A person can get married and, and never have an affair, but still not be pure. On the other hand, a person can be pure even with it, a sexually promiscuous past. Purity is not just saying no to sex before marriage. Purity is not just saying yes to sex in marriage. Purity is saying yes to godliness. That's how it's supposed to be taught. This is not how it's taught at all. Uh, at least in my experience and many of the listeners who reached out. And kind of the the high level of what my takeaway was when I really thought about it, girls are stumbling blocks. They are things that can get in the way between men's relationship with man's relationship with God. They are are temptresses, harlots in training, and it's up to them to control how men perceive them and react toward them and behave toward them. And um, it's this bizarre thing where abstinence and purity are separate things. Abstinence is part of kind of the purity movement, but abstinence is just the avoidance of sex. And purity, like you know, I mentioned earlier, is supposed to be this broader virtuous thing about living in the same way, um, you know, living in the way God designed it, in the way God intended. But what actually ends up happening is it becomes this commodity that is positioned as something you have that can be taken away, of something that is so hugely tied to your self-worth um, that it creates a whole host of problems. Not only psychologically, but in terms of a breeding ground for for unreported sexual assaults, in terms of, um, you know, the kind of idolatry that's surrounding virginity, in terms of, uh, you know, the the, the kind of gender uh, disparity of how women, boys and girls are spoken to, because actually boys and girls are equally called to be pure. And before I get too riled up, this is not great timing, but I forgot. <laughs> Really quick, I need to thank our sponsor because um, they're so wonderful to sponsor this this long episode. And uh, I, I've been working with them for a little bit now, and I'm honestly, genuinely a very big fan. A sponsor that ironically uh, is called Care Of, and it is 2.30 in the morning, and I am not taking great care of myself. But at least I am doing one small thing for myself, which is making sure I'm getting the vitamins and nutrients I need that were suggested to me by their online quiz that I actually quite like because now I'm taking like milk thistle and garlic and all these things I never knew to take before. And uh, it's really quite cool. So to remind you, it's a subscription service that delivers vitamins and supplements customized for your specific health needs. You take a short quiz to answer questions about your diet and lifestyle, fitness, health goals, and it puts together a personalized plan for you. Um, and for me, like, I, I never know what to buy, what everything does, how many to take, when to take, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm never going to go like buy all of these various vitamins, even if I heard that they were good for me. But when I when you take a quiz and it's specifically catered for you and 
you're told exactly what each thing does and what it how it will potentially help it's kind of a no-brainer and it's they come in these cute packets mine are uh they say hi beth you know my name people think my name is beth aaron five they give me a little challenge every day and I can travel with them and not have to, you know, use those rogue Ziploc bags where right before you leave, you like pour vitamins and like ibuprofen in it, like just in case, but then you lose them in your luggage, never to be seen again. And on, I don't know, it's just easy. It's easy. And for people like me that obviously don't always prioritize my own health, it's the something I can do for myself. It arrives at my door. It's easy and convenient. And beyond vitamins, you can also get uh, protein powder and uh, vitamin packs. I got this thing called extra batteries, which is an energy boost. It's like powder you pour in your mouth, like a uh, pixie stick it's delightful and um honestly the reason i'm advertising for the making is because i actually genuinely like it and i think it's a great idea and i'm the exact type of type type b person that's never going to take the time to figure this out on my own um so if you are interested in trying for 25 percent off your first care of order go to takecareof.com and enter be there in five f-i-v-e just like the how the show is spelled that's takecareof.com go enter code be there in five for 25 percent off your first order and honestly, if anything, just like go to takecareof.com and take the quiz and see what it says. I thought it was kind of fun. I had a great time. Didn't know all of the things I was missing and needed in my life. So uh, go check it out. And uh, yeah, thanks so much to Care Of for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so where was I? Uh, I was talking about kind of, you know, high level, feeling like we're stumbling blocks, feeling, you know, responsible for how people of the opposite sex react to us. Um feeling like our desirability is proportionate to our virginity these are like some high level things and again this is a compilation of my experience of what i've talked to from listeners from reading books um this is kind of the the uh me synthesizing what is largely seen as being wrong with purity culture but what i think what i think it's interesting is like here what what is actually said and one of the phenomenons i find fascinating is um, not only the way that sex is made to sound incredibly sinful, but the way marital sex is made to sound incredibly magical, mystical, transcendental. And don't like, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, intimacy between humans, I think marital relationships like that is that they're there. That should be sacred. That is so important. I obviously I'm married. I believe in a, a healthy monogamous relationship. I believe there's, there's so many things that are so much more special about marriage but I also believe that those things will not be robbed from you if you have sex before marriage, if you live together before marriage, whatever. These are, again, are all harsh oversimplifications of what a healthy relationship is comprised of. Uh, but what I think is uh, so fascinating in terms of how sex is talked about, it's kind of this funny all or nothing extreme mentality about sex where in addition to abstinence, which is just the avoidance of sex, purity culture almost... Um, uh, there's this veneration of, of marital sex, this like making, they make it sound, sound magical, mystical, transcendental. They almost, it's like there was a strategy to, um, you know, brand sex as being hell in a handbasket, dirty whore before marriage. Like, and it's almost this weird requirement to flip a switch. And the thing is, you know, as it relates to purity, the, the one of the problems is that men are, they're spoken to like their biggest obstacle is is their mind and you know that's just how you're wired and you're just gonna have to think yourself out of it but women are kind of taught that their biggest obstacle is their body and uh that their body is something you know so desirable to men and that men are constantly wanting and looking at and thinking about that um we need to overcome our desirability if that makes sense so well 
boys are taught to manage their desire. We are taught to um, manage and, and temper our desirability. And that's, I think, what really has frustrated me throughout the years. And, um, you know, to give you an example, to read from an evangelical brochure that kind of explains purity, uh, I, I want you to hear how, like, sex is positioned. And now that this is wrong, it's just like, A, it's a little funny and cringy in the context of, like, you know, a church elder talking to you about sexy things. But also, it just kind of frames, um, you know, how you're taught that it, it it's so great after marriage, but a sin before marriage. God takes sex very seriously. He picks, The pictures he gives us of sexuality is more intense, vibrant, and well-sexy than the view that is taught by culture. In fact, sticking to God's plan for sexuality leads to sex that is far more fulfilling than the sexual experiences supported by the world. And then it goes through a bunch of scripture about how God is um, pro-sex. And he says, they say, in fact, there's not a single verse in the Bible that calls sex sinful or dirty. The verses are often quoted to paint sex in a negative light that aren't about sex at all. They're about the misuse of sex outside of God's design. He designed it to be a shared experience between a husband and a wife. I roll. As the original designer, God created this experience to be the most exciting and satisfying. Um, his message isn't don't do it because it's wrong. His message is wait because sex, according to his design, is so wonderful that it's worth protecting. He wants us to enjoy it and he wants us to wait until we're married. The world teaches us that God's request to wait is proof that he wants to deny what's good for us, but nothing's further than the truth. And then they give scripture that they think is quote unquote steamy. Wait, let me find it. <laughs> um, we already established that God is pro-sex and that he desires good things for you. Here's proof. One of the reasons God created sex is for our enjoyment. That's right. He wants sex to be fun. We see this clearly in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy always. May you always be captivated by her love. And then this brochure goes, steamy, right? This passage talks about a husband being satisfied by his wife's body. The original text reads more like, may you be intoxicated by her sex. God intended sex to be exciting and enjoyable. It's true that sex outside of marriage can be fun, but it cannot reach the level of enjoyment and pleasure that we find when we stick to God's plan for sex. Um, and it says the studies indicate that women who engage in early sexual activity and those who have had multiple partners are less satisfied with their sex lives than women who entered marriage with little or no sexual experience. It concludes with saying when we uh, when we move, when sex is enjoyed According to God's plan, the result is amazing. When we move outside of the boundaries God has established for our sex lives, pleasure is weakened, intimacy is cheapened, and the blessings God intended as the result of our sexual encounters can spoil. So, obviously, I don't disagree. Like, if you want to wait for marriage, great. I don't disagree that it's it's a really special, like, the the intimacy and the, and the sanctity of marriage is incredibly special. I don't, I don't dilute that for one second. My point is the delivery. My point is cheap and spoiled. Like the 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 concept that like if you do it before, it is completely different than if you do it after you get married. And this is where a lot of women like really have a very difficult time when they get married uh, because they can't flip the switch because it's not that simple. It's incredibly complicated. It's incredibly personal, and they don't have enough uh, edu education or information about their sexuality to really understand what's going on beyond this broad strokes transcendental version of what you know marital sex is supposed to be like and the notion of like okay you know if the before and after marriage thing it's like technically in the atrium if, if you're about to walk down the aisle like you know if you've had sex you're still like a dirty whore that's committed a terrible sin but if you said some vows sign a piece of paper walk back down the aisle 
you know, 30 minutes later, you're a bright-eyed doe with, you know, dreamy breasts for the taking. It's just like very, um, it's confusing. And it's not reality to be able to, um, you know, kind of make that transition from I'm doing something very, very wrong to I'm doing something very, very holy that's celebrating in the Lord. It feels dirty and it feels uncomfortable and filthy. And there's just not the right expectations being set for young women. And uh, to read a passage from Pure, which I think can, you know, articulate this much better than I can. After you get married and like your metaphorical chastity belt unbuckles, the psychological effects don't stop there. They can follow women into their adult lives, leading to mental and physical side effects similar to symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. In purity culture, both young men and women are taught that sex before marriage is wrong, but it's teenage girls who end up most affected, Klein finds, because while boys are taught that their minds are a gateway to sin, women are taught that their bodies are. After years of being told that they're responsible for not only their own purity, but the purity of the men and boys around them, and of associating sexual desire with depravity and shame, those feelings often haunt women's relationships with their bodies for a lifetime. In 2006, she began compiling dozens of testimonies from childhood friends involved in the purity movement and found that they were all experiencing similar feelings of fear, shame, and anxiety in relationship to sex. Based on our nightmares, panic attacks, and paranoia, one might think that my childhood friends and I had been to war. And in fact, we had. We went to war with ourselves, with our own bodies, our own sexual natures, all under the strict commandment of the church. The cornerstone of this is, if women remain virgins until the day they marry a man, they're holy. If not, they're damaged goods. To avoid the latter outcome... Young adults are required to make promises signified in the form of purity balls, rings, and pledges to remain abstinent from purity until I do. In the context of making it seem like a commodity, like a, a, a currency, like a, something that the, the more scarce you make it and the longer you hold on to it, it appreciates in value. In, in making it seem like it's a physical thing that you can have and that you can also lose. it, And that's where it gets confusing because technically... Boys and girls are equally called to be pure. And only girls are really held to an impossible standard that's overly associated with sex. And it gives a, a distorted view for, for young women to think that their value and their worth is solely in their bodies and their value and their worth is solely in this purity that can be taken away from them. And if that is the thing that gets me riled up above all else, I don't care about me. I don't care about my emotional implications, whatever, I'll be fine. What I care about is the, the breeding ground this creates for the thriving of sexual assault and harassment and abuse, because if it's a commodity that can be taken from you, if it is the barometer by which you should gauge your self-worth, if somebody takes that from you, with or without your consent, what do you feel like? Nothing. What do you feel you have? Nothing. If In a culture where women cause men to stumble, and we're told men can't help themselves, and boys will be boys, and we're taught from a, an age when we don't even know what sex is to modify our behavior and our outfits and our bodies and our personalities and our interactions in a way so as not to tempt them. It puts all the blame on us. It, it creates a victim-blaming culture from the onset, and it, it causes young women to blame themselves when men do things to them without their consent. And beyond that, it's the issue not only of just not reporting it because being so deeply infiltrated in this culture of shame and guilt and of self-blaming for the behaviors of other people, but also it creates a feeling of worthlessness. If you position it as something you can lose because of sexual activity, what messaging is that sending to victims of rape and abuse? And I think that Elizabeth Smart has done a really outstanding job of, of speaking about this eloquently. As you likely know, she was kidnapped when she was 14. She had a very traditional Mormon upbringing. Her dad recently came out as gay. Um, she 
was kidnapped in her from her home in Salt Lake City in 2002 by a man and his wife who held her hostage for nine months. And um, she was kind of, she was treated essentially as this man's second wife. And he, she was raped repeatedly until she was found um, about nine months later. And um, she says, I'll never forget how I felt lying there on the ground. Ooh, um, I felt like my soul had been crushed. I felt like I wasn't even human anymore. How could anybody love me or want me or care about me? I felt like my life had no more meaning to it, and that was only the beginning of my nine months of captivity. I think it goes even beyond fear for so many children, especially in sex trafficking. It's feelings of self-worth. It's feeling of, like, who would want me now? I'm worthless. That is what it was for me the first time I was raped. I was raised in a very religious household, one that taught that sex was something special that only happened between a husband and a wife who loved each other. And that's how I'd been raised, and that's what I'd always been determined to follow, that when I got married then and only then would I engage in sex. After that first rape, I felt crushed. Who could want me now? I felt so dirty and so filthy. I understand so easily all too well why someone wouldn't run because of that alone. She said she was raised to believe that her virginity was the most special thing and described her childhood, how her childhood self viewed her rape as something that devalued her. Can you imagine turning around and going back to a society where you're no longer of value, she asked, when you're no longer as good as everyone else? Years of abstinence-only sex education fueled her sense of unworthiness after she was raped. Smart said as she recalled a teacher who compared sex to chewing gum. I thought, oh gosh, I'm that chewed up piece of gum. Nobody rechews a piece of gum. You throw it away. And that's how easily it feels like you no longer have worth. You no longer have value. Why would it even be worth screaming out? Why would it even make a difference if you were rescued? Your life still has no value. I can't Um, and I wanted to read that because you could read that and be like, she grew up in a very, uh, extreme Mormon conservative upbringing. And yes, but Protestant churches, Baptist churches, assemblies of God, mega churches, the, the, the metaphors know no bounds. And I, I heard these from my listeners. I've heard these from friends, the metaphors that are used to make, to, intentionally illustrate in a, in, a, in a far too tangible, real, and understandable format that stays with you are so sick. And like, even at a high level, what's kind of taught is in many places, again, not all, but many, um, that love is, is like uh, it, a finite quantity. And the more people you have sex with, the more your ability to love is, is cut. So if you've had one partner, you can love them wholly. If you had two partners, you can only give them half of your love. If you've had three, you can only give them a third and so on and so forth. And the positioning is, you know, you're, you're kind of spoiling the potential to have a permanent tie to, to somebody's heart and soul and to have their whole love and that your relationship will be forever tainted with resentment for these mistakes you made in the past. And that the only way to have amazing married sex is to be both emotionally and physically pure and in more extreme cases uh especially in the example of the book uh i kissed uh dating goodbye anything you know as simple as a kiss or a crush could even you know completely ruin your purity so there's all sorts there's a broad spectrum of how people look at this there's these two youtube influencers called girl they 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 call themselves girl defined i don't know their names bethany and something they are so problematic. They are. I'm frightened by their messaging. Uh, I don't. I don't know the other girl's story, but I watched one girl's video as much as I could get through of it of her and her husband deciding not to kiss until marriage. 
and um, their logic about how people think that uh, faith that, uh, you know, the, the, the purity mentality is about restriction, but really it's about freedom. If a fish is in the sea, it can swim freely, but because that's the constraints that it belongs in is water. If a fish is outside of water, it flounders, it fails, it dies. And this is what they say if you have sex or in this case, kiss outside of marriage, um, you know, you will literally you'll be a fish with gills trying to breathe air and will die floundering on the side. Now, you know, while that is beautiful, it is so fucking incorrect and it's a problem. And these videos have millions of views that I please ask that you don't contribute to. There is nothing more creepy and more of a red flag of an oppressive controlling environment than somebody telling you that under their thumb, under their rule, under their very specific restrictions, you are granted freedom. That is so disturbing. That is exactly what people want you to do is to, to preach to you ideals that are so illogical, that are so contradictory, that people present to you with such earnestness and peace and, and concepts of thinking they're communicating truth that you yourself start to think you're the one that's crazy. But anyway, back to the metaphors, there's um, there are examples like I one of my friends was at like a conference and everybody had to spit in a cup and you pass around the cup that is has spit in it. And then they ask you to drink it. And when nobody wants to drink it, they're like, that's how your husband is going to feel on your wedding night. If you've been with multiple partners, um, there's the preach you got preach you gum, like Elizabeth Smart said, there's flowers with petals pulled off that shows that, you know, when you have premarital sex and you give a petal to everybody. You are basically just a limp, uh, not in beautiful flower uh, with no petals. There are metaphors, especially in the I Kiss Dating Goodbye book that explains a couple on their wedding day and all of the past girlfriends who who are basically by the groom at the altar as if all of his past girlfriends or sexual partners are his uh, bridal party. So the bride or his whatever. Yeah, the, his groomsmen. So the bride is standing at the altar with her husband looking at all of the women he's ever been with. And the concept is to share that the groom has given away bits of his heart to every other woman he's dated before his wife and that the end result me meant he only has a small piece left to give to her. And I mean, at least I'm grateful that it's a man in that case. But um, these are not the exception. These metaphors are the rule. And I'll get to some of these emails shortly. In the book, Pure, um, uh, Klein talks about the uh, beyond like the the medical research and the the stuff I talked about earlier related to trauma. What's so interesting to me is the testimonials she's collected over the past ten plus years about married women, and she says that one woman she spoke to described having years of awkward, uncomfortable sex with her husband until she began to feel overcome by such exhaustion. She had difficulty getting out of bed. Another shared that after her first sexual experience, her body began to shake uncontrollably. In one extreme account, a woman said that feelings of panic and guilt flooded her mind like a cloud of locusts after an early sexual encounter. Soon after, orange-sized welts broke out on her stomach, arms, back, and breasts, and it became difficult to breathe. I would say it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life, she told Klein. I had no idea what was happening to me. My legs, my face, everything was bright red. It felt like I had no control over these nightmarish things happening to my body. The woman was rushed to the emergency room, and though the doctors told her she went into anaphylactic shock. And the author's saying that even though this woman knows something medical happened to her, that she's certain something spiritual happened to her because it's the result of what happens when you tempt Satan. Like, 
there's a lot of stories of women who like physically like they they will close up like they 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 cannot mentally get themselves to a place where not only can they enjoy themselves they can't even engage in the act itself anyways i highly suggest you read um hello <laughs> uh and like lastly before i get to the emails i just think like the the, the huge blind spot here is like there's the, the things are never discussed like consent coercion sexual assault birth control stis stds the only thing that is taught is that you don't need to worry about any of those things if you eventually marry another virgin and not only is that incredibly naive and dangerous but it doesn't life isn't perfect and shit happens and when you discourage people from being able to talk about sex communicate about it teach the importance that nay the necessity of consent to boys just as much as girls if not more i'd argue they need to be equipped with the tools and resources to use to make their own decisions independent of this extremely naive concept that you don't have to worry about anything bad happening if you wait and you only marry a virgin it again furthers the message of everybody else lacks value because they're in turn very high risk and put you in a position where all of these things that you're never taught about that probably seem way worse than they actually are could happen. And if there's, you know, in the event of, of assault, in the event of an unwanted pregnancy or an SDI, not knowing how to cope when any of that happens, not knowing your resources, not knowing who to go to, not being able to talk about it. There's so many truly dangerous and damaging implications of not equipping young people with options and by not empowering them to be the one that's able to make the call. These teachings are rooted in this fundamental distrust of human sexuality and this fundamental distrust of human discernment, decision-making that doesn't empower anybody to, to take control over their own body, their own sexuality and their own decisions, but rather feel like victims of circumstances beyond their control that likely further propels men to accept the old trope of boys will be boys of men can't control themselves to, to further girls into thinking that they're objects to be desired, that they're secondary to men, that they don't, their role is to provide this one and only true gift to their one husband that, and if he missteps, he, there's no perception of him losing anything. He's, his self-worth isn't gone. They're not taught like that. It's specifically this, the woman that needs to maintain this virtuous lifestyle. And I think I said this earlier, earlier, and I don't mean to repeat myself, but I think like truly the best way to think about it is being taught to uh, control and maintain your level of desire if you're a boy. And if you're a girl, being taught to control and maintain your level of desirability. What do they both have in common? They focus on the man. They focus on his thoughts. They focus on him taking no personal accountability or responsibility and the woman doing everything in her power to make herself uh, less enticing, attractive. And, uh, you know, should she uh, stumble, uh, typically she's going to be viewed as the, the, the slutty one, the promiscuous one, the problematic one. And it's just like, it is what it is. It's, it's not even within church and in society. Like, we've been dealing with this forever. And I'm not saying I'm going to solve it with this podcast, but I think that, uh, you know, it's one thing to kind of deal with that sort of double standard and navigate your way through it as a grown adult. It's a whole separate thing to try to uh, understand it as a young person. And it's a, it's a thing that can be really damaging as you make sexual decisions and as you uh, endure a trying time in the first place as it relates to self-esteem and self-development. 
And I just, something in my like heart and gut and whatever, like it really feels and worries for young women in that situation who have no one to talk to, who, um, you know, sexual assault and, and abuse is rampant. Like it is, it's awful. And it's like, I just worry so much, especially in areas that are more that of smaller communities that are more rural, that where people talk, where you, you can't trust anybody or tell someone something where these beliefs are so uh, vehemently practiced. Like even in that documentary um, where, you know, Josh Harris goes back on his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, the documentary I survived, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Um, when he, you know, he'll, he'll listen to stories of people who's, who his, his message is negatively impacted their life. And like an example is a, a woman um, talked about a, a family in her homeschool community where a girl was raped by her own brother and the shame of impurity motivated her own parents to cover it up. Like th these things are so unimaginable to so many of us, but that doesn't mean that, that they don't happen. And it doesn't mean that, um, you know, we shouldn't do what we can to mentor if, if you're involved in a church to, you know, be a bigger part of youth group to, to, I don't know, provide a, a, a balanced perspective. I don't you, I don't care if you tell people to wait until marriage to have sex. I care if you tell people it's bad, it's a sin, it's tied to their self-worth and or that they should only expect a, a heavenly, transcendental, wildly orgasmic outcome in marriage only if they abstain. It's like these things are just like kind of tricks. They're, they're just they're fear tactics. They're things that like, I don't know, I, I just don't find them helpful anymore. And like, even if you want to promote abstinence, fine. Um, promote abstinence to your average person. That That's great. I think that as humans, I hope we can all acknowledge that, you know, we can't always plan for the best case scenario and that at the very least, especially in the public education system, um, there should be, you know, secondary methods and knowledge, tools and resources taught. So people have a backup plan. So if if you want to believe that, you know, through abstinence teaching that it's going to um, effectively promote the, the you know, the behaviors you want people um, to be exhibiting and avoid the consequences that you want them avoiding, that's fine. You can believe that. I don't think that's rational or realistic, but fine. Um, there's two things there, though. One, the reality of a, everyone's boundaries are different, and people are going to do a lot of other stuff that isn't sex that still can lead to STDs and STIs. I don't know what we're calling them these days or the delineation, to be honest. I should know. Um, and secondly, even if you want to look at, you know, abstinence through rose colored glasses and just assume that uh, everybody's going to execute this correctly. Um, at the very least, I think we can all as humans acknowledge the importance of having a plan B, a backup plan, a series of knowledge, tools and resources about the effective communication about sex, the understanding of our bodies, the, the importance of teaching men and women, uh, the, the concept of enthusiastic consent. And, uh, you know, what to do about unwanted pregnancies, what to do about STIs and STDs. In the event things don't go according to plan, whether by your own consent or not, um, acting like it's not going to happen when we know full well it does happen. I just don't get what that does. And I think you can have both. And I think you can teach both. And I think that there's really no harm in people knowing that if things don't go according to plan, should they want to be abstinent, that they... Uh, have places they can go and people they can trust and uh, ways they can be healthy and safe and reassured. I mean, I don't see how you can listen to like hear Elizabeth Smart talk and not, especially as a woman, like how are there women out there who don't hear that and just 
Like, I don't understand how you could hear that and not be absolutely unequivocally heartbroken that for somebody to be raped and to feel that they might as well stay because they won't be wanted back home because the thing that's the focal point of their value in Christ's eyes is taken from them. You know, granted, that's extreme, but I told you about these metaphors and I'll read you some emails that shows you this is broader than just extremism. I I just, you know, I, I want us to be practical. I want us to be supportive and I want us to, you know, move forward in a direction where we're, you know, not promoting at risk behavior. It's just a matter of having a more realistic outlook on what the data actually shows that young people are doing and how we can keep young people safe and how we can keep them healthy and how we can ultimately help them feel supported. So these extremely damaging self-esteem, self-worth and, uh, you know, mental health issues aren't aren't carried with them throughout the rest of their lives and don't dictate their decision making at pivotal points in their life. And I think that, um, I don't know, I just feel like, I don't know. I know I'm not a parent and I know like I it's I'm so blessed to have great parents and I really did always feel supported. And even though it was my choice to never talk to them about anything because I felt like the church told me I shouldn't kind of um, I I felt I never felt like I was put in that compromising of a position. But I think that what kills me is that I think about myself being in one and I think about that I really would have um felt awful and felt so guilty and um, been so embarrassed. And uh, without, you know, that dialogue and that pragmatic outlook, I just think we're breeding a generation of women that are ill-equipped to continue to fight against, uh, you know, imbalanced power dynamics, gender inequities, uh, victim blaming and shaming. And I don't know, I guess I just hope that uh, times are changing. And uh, uh, I, I don't, I think that, uh, we can hope for that or we can all do what we can on a very, uh, micro level to hope that there will be uh, macro results from a series of small efforts. Cause really with anything, that's how it works. And, uh, I don't know. I know I'm not, I'm not preaching to you guys. <laughs> if you're doing anything wrong, rather this is a platform. And in the event, anybody's listening who kind of didn't, I don't know, uh, who, who wasn't really thinking that this was happening. Um, a lot of my friends in the city were like, really? People do that? People talk like that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, big time. Uh, it's important to be aware of, I think. And even though I'm just sitting here, like, rambling about my thoughts on it, I hope that, I don't know, I hope that something was uh, remotely uh, interesting or educational or enlightening about just not talking through my stuff, but talking through, you know, the some of the what people have, that are speaking out publicly that I've written books and, um, you know, some of the thought leaders in this space have pointed out as being the major issues within purity culture. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting, too, because a lot of us grew up in these circles and hadn't really revisited it, revisited it in a while. Uh, I certainly think it's it's worth uh, some thought just to make sure, you know, you're unburdened by any of this and that you know that you're perfect the way you are and that you're not doing anything wrong. And um, so much of our, our neuroses and anxieties are just so buried. And I don't, you know, even know how one begins to access them. Uh, and I don't think it's that easy, but I certainly think that um, it can't hurt to go easy on ourselves and to dissect what influences us that maybe isn't our fault. And, uh, you know, to realize that it's never too late to change, to evolve, to change your mind about something and to feel differently about a situation. I think a lot of times people are shocked that like, something they've been fine with their whole life uh, that happened a long time ago 
they suddenly will feel very differently about and almost feel like they don't have the right to because they thought they got over it. You know what I mean? Like there's so many interesting implications of these things we learn when we're young. And um, again, I'm not my, you know, I, I, I pale in comparison to, to trauma other people experienced. Uh, I think for me, it's just a lot of confusion with gender roles, with, uh, you know, having curves with, you know, comfort around men with thinking like I shouldn't be talking to them because I was tempting them. And even though like I didn't even always think I was like some sort of mega hottie. Um, but, uh, you know, in my head, I just thought women were just regular Jessica rabbits. And it was very confusing. And uh, I mean, they are. We're all beautiful and sexy as we are, but we're also allowed to be. And that's 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 the beauty of it. We're allowed to be whatever the hell we want and do and say and act however the hell we want. And if somebody it makes somebody behave or react or incites them to do a certain thing, it is not our responsibility because everybody is responsible for their own behavior. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm, the next episode will just be stories and I don't want to have ads in there. I just, again, I don't like monetizing people's, um, I just, I don't, I feel like it's weird when people are sharing and opening up and, you know, it's, it's kind of in the context of something that could be like interesting or juicy. And then like you're profiting off. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't know. Whatever. I just like this. I'm not doing this episode for listens or like, because it's, you know what I mean? Like, this is just something I generally thought was interesting and that you guys were interested in too. And I don't have um, intentions other than just to shed light on something that I think is uh, important and easily buried. Uh, the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, I, I know I've said this in different forms, but I just want to like be clear to conclude. Uh, all I, what I want to say is that is the importance of communicating to young people and to yourself that you're more than your sexual experience or your lack thereof. And um, the marriage is sacred. Sex is sacred. These things are so important. They're beautiful and they're amazing parts of life. But when you oversimplify um, what it takes to be in a happy, healthy relationship, or when you exaggerate um, what it looks like to be in a happy, healthy sexual relationship, to the point where people will forever be falling short of unrealistic expectations. We don't need to focus on if you do or don't have sex. The the cool, the beauty of marriage and love and a partnership and everything that it comprises, sex is part of it, but not all of it. And by making it the focal point at, from a young age and making our bodies and our sex drives uh, seem like such a distinguishable and uh, untrustworthy part of ourselves, it really takes away from what's far more important than virginity, which is, uh, uh, you know, mature, healthy individual relationships with yourself, um, developing and building a mature, healthy relationship with your partner, acknowledging that sex is part of it, but not all of it. And that there's many, many uh, areas of compatibility and experience and values and goals that are important to share, to have strong, healthy relationships. I, if I ever have children, I don't want them to feel like they have, you know, if they have sex with somebody, if they are intimate with somebody, I don't want them to feel like they have to marry them uh, because they gave them something or they belong to them. I think it's life is a dance of um, keeping people safe and, you know, at the pace they should be for their age and experience level, but also letting people step out, letting people make mistakes, letting people fall and get back up and uh, even though these things seem scary because the consequences are so much more dire, uh, I think that we'd be surprised what happens when we trust people and when they're innocent until proven guilty. 
and when um, we treat them like young adults. And I know I, I actually, a, a big reason why I behaved, period, and I didn't do the class pranks and I didn't ever, you know, to go do crazy things and ding dong ditch. And like, I don't know, my friends were always doing like crazy, you know, even if it weren't drinking or drugs, like, I don't know, just kind of like would have fun that I wasn't always totally comfortable with. And I stayed behind and not because of church, but because um, my parents were like, well, we know you'll make the right decision. And when you frame it like that, I'm like, well, no, I can't make the wrong decision. But whenever you don't feel trusted, whenever you don't feel believed, whenever you're guilty before you're proven innocent, you're kind of like, well, I already lost the trust that by not doing this thing I was going to maintain. So might as well do it anyway. And there's a lot of resentment there. And I think that it's just, I don't know. I don't want to oversimplify either. I'm not a parent. I'm not telling you how to parent. I'm just saying in my experience, I, my behavior far was far and above better um, when I was trusted to make the right decision because I didn't want to disappoint anybody. But if you feel like you've already disappointed them, what do you have to lose, you know? Uh, so anyway, guys, I, I guess above all else, above all of that, the most important thing of all is, um, is when I think about my experience in the church, you know, regardless of the complicated places where it ended up, where it started was, you know, not singing, I want to give the Lord my 10th. I, I was singing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I don't know how it gets so convoluted over the years, but it does. And I know I get so angry sometimes and feel like these things ruin something that's supposed to be so peaceful and such a sanctuary and a, and a source of hope and strength for so many people that so desperately need it. And it's so incredibly important to, and don't get it twisted. I, I, I'm the first one to say a prayer the second anything happens. This, you know, I, I, I stand on these, you know, I speak in these platitudes and I have all of these thoughts, but, you know, I'm a human and the second something goes wrong is the second I turn straight back there. And I think, you know, I guess sometimes I, more than anybody else, need to remember to not let um, the, the flaws of man ruin what is supposed to be in, inherently flawless because it's not dentable, because it's stronger than any of these people that try to bring it down. And, you know, I guess uh, at the end of the day, you know, for, for, for the love of God, God loves you. And that's what we have to remember. I'm not sure what I'm going to read the stories in the next episode. I'm not sure when I'll post it, uh, but it'll be before next week. I'm not I kind of want to have like I like to have these episodes be like clean of ads. And like, I don't I'm not trying to like I'm not trying to like drop juicy stories or interesting information to profit off of my listeners. You know, I, I just feel like this is something that's like kind of close to everybody's like heart. And I feel like it's I'm really I'm. You know, let's just say I'm not talking about a church for the listens episode I'm here for. I legitimately wanted to explore this and have this dialogue with you. And um, I, uh, yeah, so I will post that soon as soon as I'm done recording it. I'm going to read as many as possible. I keep having to re-record because I have this problem where I read things fast and I slur. Like I, I, I don't, I, I don't think I'm talking. I think I'm reading in my head, but I'm like, this is, this is, you know what I mean? I do this all the time and I, I just want to make sure I'm speaking more concisely. I uh, wanted to get this part up first. So thank you for your patience. I'm going to figure out what to do with the 30 minutes. I <laughs> I don't know. I just don't want to be the person that's like fixated, you know, on like, like, what am I doing? I, I know I said it's kind of my true crime, but uh, I don't know that I need to be, uh, you know, pivoting. 
to uh, talk about this so much. I think that I just I get in personal rabbit holes and I struggle where the line is of um, sharing versus keeping to myself at risk of altering my brand to be something that overly harps on uh, singular things. You know what I mean? That's kind of why I, you know, I, I wanted to space out Taylor Swift to space out bloggers, you know, because I, I, I know I tend to obsess about things. But anyway, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. All right. Thank you for joining. I hope this is a good use of your time. I love you so much. And um, as always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. I'm not a perfect person. I never meant to do those things to you. And so I have to say before I go. Just want you to